Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. Before we get to James, let us remind you of our chart, and if you are catching up with us, we want to remind you how we're going about the study from this point on. We did the Gospels, and we dealt with Acts, and then we put a chart out there, which I didn't replicate for you. But just to remind you, we're going to cover it all of this in in chronological order. And on the left side here, we've got the Pauline epistles, of course, and their corresponding dates. Hopefully that's in your notes from last time. And we will deal with all of those. We gave those categories, early letters of Paul, the major letters of Paul, which simply means they're the longest, the prison letters or prison epistles of the apostle Paul, the pastoral letters of the apostle Paul. And then James, of course, and as you see in our chart, that's what we dealt with last week. That's all we had time for when we finished the book of Acts. And then we're going to go in this order. So James will go, James, which we dealt with, will go Galatians through Second Timothy, Hebrews, First and Second Peter, Jude, and then we'll continue through John's epistles and the book of Revelation. These are the general epistles, as you know. And then I caught a typo from last week. Maybe you caught it. I had prophesy instead of prophecy. It needs to be a C and not an S. And you know the difference, right? To prophesy is to do the act of telling forth God's truth for the first time when we think of it in terms of capital P and with a C when we're talking about the actual content, the prophecy. And book of Revelation is in the category of prophecy. So prophecy. All right. I've got on your worksheet here, James, only to do a little housekeeping from last week that I want to uh, continue a pattern that we'll keep through the book of third John or Jude. And uh, that'll be dealing with the categories of length, author, date, recipient, purpose, outline, and what I called favorite things as bold and audacious as that is for me to talk about my favorite things. But if you teach the class, you can talk about your favorite things. But one thing I added, as you see, if you're, if you're quick to compare last week's is I didn't deal with length. So I, so I want to, just for the sake of comparison, always start with that basic data of the book. Matter of fact, it might be good if you brought your notebook or your old electronic files. If you look back, you can just add this in the front of letter A from last time. Nevertheless, and just for the sake of comparing these books, of course, James has five chapters. It'd be good for us to memorize just by use. You get used to that. It's got 108 verses, at least broken down into verses, which of course weren't uh, until late in church history when these verses were just helpful mechanisms for us to recall these things. Got 1,742 words in the Greek New Testament, the original language of the New Testament. So we'll start all the books that way just to give us a sense of comparison in the size of these books. So let's get on to Galatians, and that's where we're going to study here tonight for the first part of our study. Galatians, in terms of its length, it's six chapters long. If you think through your knowledge of uh, the book of Galatians, it is 149 verses just by way of comparison. And in the Greek New Testament, it's 2,230 words. That gives you a sense of how long that is. And I've just pulled a bunch of New Testament extant manuscripts that we have from P46 collection. If you're interested in textual criticism, all of these great pictures are from from P46 and, and Papyrus 46, which is not just one papyrus. It's a collection of papyri. By the way, I'm very impressed since I've 
taught bibliology and try to utilize, I mean, I utilize my thousands of books that I use for my study, but to go online and see what they've done on Wikipedia, believe it or not. I know that's not a uh, powerhouse of veracity always, but in this case, if you just look up New Testament manuscripts or papyrus of the New Testament, they have put together a great chart, a lengthy chart of the early manuscripts of the New Testament, and they're all linked to like the Center for New Testament Studies, and they've got links to them and and downloadable files, and it's just a beautiful collection, something you could not do uh, even 20 years ago online. They used to have a couple pay sites that were hard to get into and academic sites, but to have these done the way, digitized the way they are, is uh, is phenomenal. So if you're ever interested in going to the next level or you want to see some of these manuscripts and what we have and where they are and what we have them at the University of Michigan, Yale, in our country, a lot of them overseas, British Museum, various schools in uh, Oxford and Cambridge and all the rest. But great layout. I mean, I'm very impressed that they've got it the way they've got it. Enough said on that. But uh, that's where I'm pulling, of late at least, in this Compass Night series, all of my digital pictures of the early manuscripts. It's a great collection. Galatians Link, you've got a sense of that. Author, this isn't going to be hard necessarily, but we will see some unique characteristics on how these letters are presented to us. And as I said last time we were together, we have the basic salutation and identification of the sender and recipients up front, which was the, the basic layout and standard fare for early correspondence in the New Testament. So Galatians 1 starts with a stated author, of course, Paul. It's first word in the book, an apostle, not from man, but through Christ Jesus. And so Paul the Apostle is the stated author, enough said on that. But we'll see more variations on that, even from Pauline uh, epistles, Paul's epistles. The date, this is much debated. It's contingent on the recipients. So we're going to come back to letter C, and we'll go on to letter D, because depending on who the recipients are, uh, then we can figure out what the date is. And you say, well, if Ephesians is to the Ephesians and Thessalonians is to the Thessalonians and the Colossians is the Colossians, well then Galatians is to the Galatians. And that may be great, but perhaps you don't understand that this is the one New Testament book that we have from the Apostle Paul that is not written to a city. Those are very localized, specific places on a map, and we can go and see all about those early cities. But Galatians is not a city, it is a region. So let's go to D and we'll come back to C. To the churches of Galatia, and all you have to do really is see the plural there on the word and to who it's written to, and you immediately know, well, this seems like unusual for the early church. The early church in one city, uh, you could have anywhere from, I don't know, 20,000 people to 200,000 people in one of these ancient cities, but usually you only had one church in those cities. But in this case, you've got churches, and that should be a hint in the pattern of having one church per city, which is no prescription. It's just a description of the early church, and though there's some that try to make that a prescription that there should only be one church, one true church in every city, that's not the case. I hope you know that. The cults might tell you that, but that's not true. Uh, the churches of Galatia, though, let you know that this is a uh, series of churches in a, in a region. So this is multiple churches in a region, so we need to think that through. Well, let's go back in a region. You got all that. Let's look at the map here. If you were to look at a map, even the maps in the back of your Bible, as I had you reference last time we were together for Paul's journeys, this is a region that extends down to the Mediterranean Sea, almost all the way up to the Black Sea. It's a strip of land here in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. And so we've got to figure out who we're dealing with here. Now, there's two meanings in New Testament times. When you talk about Galatia, you could be referring to northern Asia Minor. Right? You could be referring to the northern part of that, which is great. Or you could be talking about a 
large Roman province, which extends from the north all the way to the south. And so you could have, for instance, as a theory, that if Paul's using the word Galatians, maybe he's using it the way uh, it was generally used, not in terms of Rome trying to look at a region of Roman domination, but just how it would be used in normal conversation. And so maybe that's just what we're dealing with, is to the north. Well, if that's the case, then what you've got is churches that must have been planted on the second missionary journey. I know it's a lot of balls to hold in your mind at one time, but if you think back to that first missionary journey, everything was along the Mediterranean Sea for the most part. He went to Derby and Lystra and Iconium. He stayed pretty much to the south. Then we see in the second missionary journey, things move to the north. So we've got a theory about what Paul might have meant and who he was writing to. Maybe this is to the northern cities and the northern churches of Galatia. Or if we're talking about the large Roman province down south primarily, maybe we're dealing with the churches planted on the first missionary journey. So this, in any commentary, even your study Bible at the beginning of the book, you're going to have to have a discussion and a distinction. If there's more than one paragraph on, on author and recipient, you're going to have them discuss the northern Galatian theory and the southern Galatian theory. Were these written to the north? Were they written to the south? And all we have to do then is to lay over the top of that Paul's missionary journeys and come to the conclusion that one would have to put it early and one would have to put it later. Because if he hasn't visited those northern regions, he certainly couldn't be writing to these churches as though he knows what's going on there when he hasn't been there, and yet he speaks to them as though he has. So let's go and think in these terms. When it says to the churches of Galatia, multiple churches, it seems best to us that if there's no mention of Acts 15, which is the Jerusalem council, and as we'll get into, and you just your cursory knowledge of Galatians, you know he's dealing with ceremonial law issues, and he calls them the Judaizers, or those that want people circumcised. Well, that was exactly what the Jerusalem Council was all about. They were trying to solve that problem. When Paul and Barnabas came down from Antioch to Jerusalem to deal with this issue, and you had Peter there and Silas, and everyone was there, all the powerhouses of the early church, and they were trying to deal with what do we do with these Gentile converts. This is the theme of the Jerusalem Council. Well, that gives us a sense then as to when it is. And and that is at least my theory and and the theory of many people that this fits best then under the uh, Southern theory. So if it's the Southern theory, we go back to date and we say, if it's Southern Galatia, well, then it must've been written after the first missionary journey, or it could be at least. And because there's no mention of the Jerusalem council, or there's no phraseology used that way, there's no discussion. Listen, the apostles and the leaders of the church have met, and we've decided that this is what's best. And here is the layout. And here are the four things we decided that you should do if you're a Gentile convert and all the rest of that. Instead of quoting any of that, then we're thinking this must have been to the Southern churches after the first missionary journey before the Jerusalem council. And we then pin the date at 48. If that's the case before the second missionary journey, then what we have is the earliest writing of the apostle Paul, or earliest extant writing of the apostle Paul, at least. And that puts it at the top of our list on the left-hand column. If you think back to our chart as the first book in time that the apostle Paul wrote. There's a lot more you can read about that in any commentary and certainly your, even your Bible, study Bible notes will help you with that. And unfortunately, I'm going to have to say a lot of that between now and the book of Revelation, or we're never going to get through our series. Purpose of the book. Clearly, Paul is concerned with the purity of the gospel. Right out of the gate, he identifies himself as the apostle Paul. He got this gospel, not from a man or men, and he's going to talk about this with a great authority. He's not trying to please people. He's trying to please God by making very clear that you hold to the gospel that you were given. 
on the first missionary journey, and that you don't pervert that by these Judaizers coming in saying, if you want to be a real Christian, you've got to get circumcised. You've got to stick to the real gospel. And therefore, the book is all about putting the Jewish ceremonial law in its place. He talks about the rebuke to Peter, for instance, who's drawing back from eating with the Gentiles because the Jews show up. He's intimidated by that. And he's saying, that's ridiculous. That shouldn't be happening. And of course, they didn't like the Apostle Paul for the stand that he had. And there was a lot of critics of the Apostle Paul that were trying to discount Paul in the region. And that was always a problem for the Apostle Paul. He'd go as an apostle. He would show his apostolic authority. He would preach and give the gospel purely. He would leave. And then people would come in to distort the truth, like he told the Ephesian pastors would happen. And he said, people are going to rise up from your own midst. They're going to contradict what's been said, but hold faithfully to the gospel. Well, in this case, he's always writing these letters and many of them, he has to defend his position as an apostle and defend his, his message. So Paul's certainly writing this book in part to defend his apostolic authority. Simplified outline. Number one, can't tweak the gospel. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, it's all about the fact that if Michael the archangel himself were to show up and give you a different gospel than the one that we gave you, let him be forever condemned. We get the word, the old word, anathema from that, damned. Let him be damned. Let God damn that person because he's twisting the truth. And that became a favorite word in church councils to anathematize people who had heretical views, and it all came from this chapter in these first 10 verses of Galatians. He goes on then in the middle of chapter 1 through the end of chapter 2 to defend his apostleship. He talks about his encounter with Peter. He talks about who he is, what he's done, how he came to be to the place of being an authoritative apostle, how this all came from God and not from people. This wasn't endowed upon him by the others. It was endowed upon him by Christ himself. He then speaks of the real core of the book, and that is justification by faith. It's not about keeping the ceremonial laws. It's not about you going through any kind of circumcision, dietary restrictions, or anything else from the Old Testament ceremonies. And then he speaks at the end of the book about the practical Christian life. We get some of the greatest passages that we quote all the time about the fruit of the Spirit and walking by the Spirit and love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. All of that from the second half of the book where he deals with putting all of this into practice, bearing the burdens of others and all the things you may recall when you think about quotable passages from Galatians when it comes to encouraging Christians in the Christian life. Favorite things. My favorite things. I love the fact that the Apostle Paul, very inspiring for me, and I hope it is for you, that really when it comes down to it, it doesn't matter what your family thinks about your doctrine, doesn't matter what anyone thinks, doesn't matter what your friends think, doesn't matter what the critics think, doesn't matter what the people on the street think, doesn't matter what the polls say, all that matters is what God thinks. If I'm trying to please people, he said, I'm not a servant of Christ, but I am a servant of Christ. I serve God, and that means I've got an audience of one. I only want to please one person. If we could just get that one lesson from the letter to the Galatian churches, we would come out way ahead in thinking through our Christian life. The fear of man is a snare, the Old Testament says. It's a trap, and so many of us are trapped because we care what other people think of us. And the Apostle Paul had a laser-like focus on what he was there to do. He's there in those churches to please God. And that's very important if you're teaching a class, not to be purposefully crude or or rude or narrow or offensive, but I'm here ultimately to preach a message and you should be too in your evangelism and everything else that pleases God. And if you look around at church websites and see the kinds of things they advertise and what they're doing in terms of preaching engagements and themes and retreats and all the rest, you can see real clearly 
the difference between trying to construct a ministry or even do ministry with an eye to please the Lord or an eye to please people. I certainly like to be agreeable. I get that. But we've got one person to please. We were joking about it uh, today on a text thread with my family about some things. There's the things that we preach, if you go back to what was preached in the Bible, you can clearly see they love God and they're willing to give the gospel clearly. When Paul, for instance, we quoted that a couple times in my family this week about preaching and reasoning with him about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. That, that's a kind of concern for truth and not a concern for the powers that be when Paul is preaching there before Felix and Festus. Paul's audience of one, inspiring. Paul's willingness to defend himself. You would think if you're godly, you'd never defend yourself. But we'll see this in so many epistles, as I said, where Paul is willing to defend himself because he recognizes this. If they're, if they're able to undermine me and my reputation with those people, they'll cut me off from the source of good truth. And I don't want to be cut off from them. I want to appeal to them by saying, I'm right and those guys are wrong. And that seems very petty in a day when everyone's concerned about their own reputation. But Paul's concerned about his reputation, not for reputation's sake, but for the sake of who he is in their lives. And he's a source of truth. People are twisting the truth by trying to edge Paul out. By the way, it's one of Satan's number one strategies. Once you get connected, for instance, in a church or in a place of discipleship or a pastor even, dare I say that, as the pastor, Satan would love to get you disconnected in some way so you don't have that channel and that feeding anymore of good sound doctrine. And so that's always happening in these places where Paul goes and he's trying to write back with a kind of vigorous defense of his apostleship. And I like the fact that he's willing to do it. And of course, he has wisdom to know when to do it. Humility is not being one who lets everyone think whatever they want about him. Someone who is wise recognizes, even in their humility, that there's a time to stand up and defend yourself, not for self's sake. My wife and I have been through this so many times in thinking about the attacks in ministry and things we've been through for three decades, at least in this work, that there are times we're going to defend ourselves for the sake of the truth. Does it matter? Is it an attack against me or is it an attack against me and what I'm teaching? And that's, those are two different things. It's just about me and he looks funny or whatever. That's one thing and that's fine, but it's about defending ourselves when truth is on the line. Paul's boldness, of course, not only with the Galatians, but with his critics, which he at points castigates, and then his apostle, Peter, his brother, his fellow apostle. He's willing to be bold. He talks about rebuking Peter to his face, and that's the kind of boldness and and forthrightness that I think is refreshing. At least you know where you stand with the apostle Paul, and Paul is clear about that. Flattery is a sin, by the way. You know that, right? It's a sin because it's lying. And so many of us today, because we're so concerned about an audience of a hundred and not an audience of one, we're very good at uh, flattering people. Uh, And Paul is not a flatterer, and you catch that clearly in the book of Galatians. And then, of course, clarity about the ceremonial law. We need to be very clear about the ceremonial law so that we could be so entrenched in the truth of the gospel that when Ellen G. White, for instance, gets this great revelation and claims that we got to go back to the ceremony of keeping the Sabbath and we got to go back to the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament, we could stand up and say, heresy. It's another gospel. Now we're in the Galatian heresy. We're not going to stand for that because we understand the role of the ceremonial law. It is a shadow of the things that were to come, but the substance is in Christ, to quote Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. That is a kind of clarity of thought that we need because even today, someone's going to pull out Exodus 20 and say, look at the Ten Commandments, and right in the middle is the Sabbath, for instance, and that's going to be an issue. People that even reject, you know, the kind of false prophecies of a cult leader will still say, well, I'm a Seventh-day Baptist, for instance. Those are the kinds of things that should be clear because we study books like Galatians and we know what the role of the law is. 
whether it's dietary restrictions or circumcision or anything that relates to what was a ceremonial law. And the distinction's clear. I preached on that this weekend, at least for a moment. It was clear in the mind of the Apostle Paul about what was ceremony and what was moral. Moral law clearly transcends the, the Testaments, but ceremonial law does not. It comes to an end. It becomes null and void. The ceremonies of the Old Testament become absolutely obsolete, to use the translation from the book of Hebrews. It's not worth anything for us anymore. Are there sensitivities? Sure. And we'll see that in 1 Corinthians and in Romans. But when it comes to people saying you got to do this because this pleases God, that's not the point. And then, of course, tenacity regarding the gospel. We ought to be fighters for something. And when it comes to what we care about, it's the central issues. The tertiary issues, perhaps, whatever. Let's not argue about those. Certainly within the same church, we're not going to argue about those or even secondary issues. But when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to what it takes to be saved, and people always ask me that, where is the line? I would say this. It comes down to the things that if you didn't believe them, you would not be right with God. So we've got to have all the basics of our theology in terms of who we are, the problem of sin, how we relate to our creator, who was Christ, who actually was he? What did he accomplish on the cross? Did he bodily raise from the dead? When you look at passages of scripture that tie those doctrines to our salvation, then you've got to say, I can't fudge on those. I've got to be committed to those. And Paul is ready to go to the mat and even say, it doesn't matter if it's Peter or Michael, the archangel, if we're going to tweak the gospel, we're going to break fellowship really hard and really fast. First Thessalonians. Here's another great leaf from P46. Length of uh, First Thessalonians, it's a five-chapter book, as you know. We haven't ever added them up. The aggregate of the verses is 89 verses, and there's 1,481 words in the original language of First Thessalonians. And even as you look at that papyrus, you can see that there's no spaces between the words, obviously no punctuation between the words. It's a highly inflected language. You don't have a need, really, for punctuation. Let's talk about the author. In this case, of course, it is stated in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. But look, he doesn't just say Paul to the church of the Thessalonians. He says Paul, Salvanus, and Timothy. So Paul the apostle includes his associates in this case. Salvanus is also known, a.k.a. as Silas, which we know, we're used to hearing him in those terms as we read about him, for instance, in Acts chapter 15, or even as we see Peter speak of him in 1 Peter chapter 5. So he's a power player in that he plays an important role in the church of Jerusalem, according to Acts 15, and the Jerusalem Council. Uh, He's a companion of the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey. That's what MJ is going to stand for from now on, not Michael Jordan, but missionary journey, second missionary journey. He's also in the salutation and the opening of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1 as well. And then, of course, Timothy, who we also picked up, you might remember, in the second missionary journey, as it's described in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, native of the city of Lystra in southern Galatia, and the son of a devout Jewish mother who taught him the scriptures from his childhood, you might remember, and a grandmother who was also saved. He joins Paul during his second missionary journey, and he's also there as a part of the opening of Philemon, verse 1 continue with the apostle in a variety of capacities. He was a messenger. He brought letters. He brought information. He ministered with Paul. He went into the synagogues with Paul as a fellow evangelist and ended up leading the church in Ephesus and became a young pastor. was much younger than the apostle Paul. You remember Paul said, let no one look down on your youthfulness. We just read that in our daily Bible reading this last week. Paul loved 
Timothy, called him his true son in the faith and highly esteemed him. You can catch that from a lot of his writings. So Silas and Timothy are part of the authorship of this book. At least he names his associates. Clearly the authority and the first person pronouns reminds us it's Paul's letter, but he joins, enjoins these two names because the Thessalonians would know him from his visit there. The date of this, let's just give you where this was written from in Corinth. Paul goes back and spends time there and has time to write this book. And he writes it in 51, maybe even late 50, depending on, I mean, we're guessing there as a window, but we have it really closed between late 50 or early 51. The recipients of the church in Thessalonica. The church was founded on the second missionary journey. You might remember the maps I had you look at in your Bibles or something like this. You might remember Thessalonica was way up here in modern day Greece. And Paul later goes down on that same trip to Corinth. And in Corinth, he's there for 18 months in his second missionary journey. So this is one of those letters that he writes before he finishes that tour on the second missionary journey. And he's going to write back and send that right back to Thessalonica. And you might remember he gets led out of Thessalonica because there's persecution. Matter of fact, one of the reasons they complained about him, his critics, to the Thessalonians is because they thought he bailed on you. Well, he didn't bail on on them by necessity, but he certainly got run out of town and went to Berea. And you remember a little bit about that in the book of Acts. But these are the two places he writes from Corinth back to Thessalonica. Here's some pictures from Thessalonica, some of the ancient ruins there. You may not remember that view, but certainly we all remember this view. And it's funny because it looks so ancient there. This is what they call the Cardo. In all the ancient cities, you look for the Cardo. Cardo, like cardiologist, means heart. It's the heart of the city. It's the main street. It's you know, it's the main drag. It's where all the shops and marketplace marketplaces were. This is some of the excavations. And it's funny because you, it's surrounded by all the apartments and buses going by. That's what it looks like presently. There is a uh, there is an arch there, kind of the arch of, of triumph in their own in their own right from the fourth century uh, A.D. This was actually in uh, erected by the emperor of Rome, Galerius, the arch of Galerius, and he was the emperor from 305 to 313. To give you a sense, before we got to Constantine, just just before that. And this was early victory arch. It's neat to look at. We stopped there, if you might remember, if you were with us on that trip and checked out the arch. And there's an adjoining tower and all the rest. Speaking of towers, there's another tower that's quite prominent on the ocean front here. It's called the White Tower, constructed on the same place there was a Byzantine tower. You can see how densely populated it is. The population now within the city limits is about 325,000 people. In the metro area, there's a million people. So there's a lot of folks there. The weather is good. It's a great place. Certainly when we went there as a church, as I recall, it got a little rainy when we got to Philippi, but it was nice there. First Thessalonians, the recipients, of course, is giving you that picture of the modern city. It was the capital Roman providence of Macedonia. Macedonia, you might remember on the map, is the whole region. This was the principal city, and it was a large Roman population, of course, Greek population, and there was a large Jewish colony there. I say today within the city limits in the old city is about 325,000 people. In the New Testament times, there was about 200,000 people. So this has always been a well-populated area. Paul went back here on his third missionary journey, and we read about that in Acts chapter 17. He also went back after the Roman imprisonment. Remember, he made his way, we kind of of call it the fourth missionary journey, when he made his way back to Rome as a prisoner on the ship and the shipwreck and all the rest. After he got released, the end of the book of Acts, he goes back and visits Thessalonica again. So he had an affinity to this church, as you can tell by reading the book. He loved these people, and they were a great joy to him in many ways. They received the word, not as the word of man, but for what it is, the word of God. And 
Paul uh, loves learners like that, as do I, and as do you, I'm sure, whenever you teach the Bible to people. The purpose of the book, if you notice as you read it, Timothy is bringing good news back to Paul as they kind of split up there in Acts 17, after he kind of gets shown the door and evicted from the city, goes on to Berea, as I said, and they were more noble-minded in, you know, searching the scriptures and seeing if the things that Paul had said were so. But Timothy brings a good report, and it's most, mostly good. There is some bad news in it that he responds to, but so much glowing response from the Apostle Paul on how positive his experience was there with the Thessalonians, and he's so joyful to hear that they're doing well spiritually. So he wants to encourage them. He wants to cheer them on. He wants to comfort them, because as we saw in Acts 17, there's a lot of persecution that breaks out as he brings the word under the great cloud of opposition. They received it. They were converted. The church was started, and he wants to comfort them that their persecution means everything's right on schedule, just like we should think today, even though we're not accustomed to it in our recent American history. We need to realize that's the norm. That's par for the church to be persecuted. And he does, as he did to the Galatians, and he will to the Corinthians. He refutes the critics of his ministry. He's going to respond to them. Again, not that he's trying to be personally put himself in a good light. It's that he wants to make clear that when he's been spurned and wrongly accused, he's going to rectify that by refuting the criticisms of his detractors. And of course, he's going to talk about holy living in a way that I think is some of the most poignant, direct, hard-hitting, clear, concise preaching on sexual ethics in the Bible. It's really good. And of course, he talks a lot about eschatology and the return of Christ. We'll take a look at that in a minute. But that's the purpose of the book. It's kind of all over the map, but it's generally a really, really positive book. A lot of times our guys go out to plant these churches, and I often tell them, man, First Thessalonians is a great book for you to preach from as you get started, particularly when you don't have a history with the church and you think they're really great and they think you're really great. That's a great book to preach from before they realize you're not all that great and you see all their problems. But it is a great book. I preached on that early in my ministry, and I think I called the series Words to a Great Church. I'd been there long enough to know otherwise, but I still was very positive and optimistic. We had our problem. Simplified outline. i get really up to date here. He's just, he's cheering them on. Yay. Thessalonian Christians, you guys are great. You've turned from idols to the living God. This word about your conversion is going out everywhere. I don't need to defend you and say anything. Up and down the coast, and we're hearing about you. And so I'm just excited. Yay, Thessalonian Christians. And then he refutes his criticism in chapter 2. And he does it in such a personal way. It has, doesn't have the edge that it has in Galatians, and it doesn't have the edge that it has in Corinthians. His defense here is it's mild, but it's transparent. You know, I was like a loving mother to you. I was like a, a caring, exhorting father to you. Those are the kinds of things that you might remember from the second chapter and dealing with his critics who were saying the opposite. And then, yeah, got a good report from Timothy fantastic. Again, this is another wonderful breath of fresh air in Paul's writings to hear another good section. It's like reading Jesus's words to the seven churches. And every now and then you get two churches, two out of seven at least, where you get these good reports and no negativity. And that's what it feels like in chapter three and in chapter one. And then the first half of chapter four, verses one through 12, he talks about holiness. Now he talks about it in general, but he uses sexual ethics as a specific example. And that's a great section of scripture I'm going to look at quickly here before we cruise on to the next book. And then the end times information, chapter 4, 13. You might hear this quoted often at funerals about the dead in Christ rising first and grieving, not like the rest of the world, but as those who have hope. All of that comes from this book and Paul's discussion about the end times, including that great description regarding the being gathered up, harpazo in Greek, which is translated into Latin 
rapture, which is transliterated into English, rapture. We get that from this passage here in First Thess 4. And then a various set of exhortations at the end, which I'll also reference in a minute. But great way to end the book with all these rapid-fire exhortations. Let's talk about some of my favorite things in First Thessalonians. I love that he has positivity about growing Christians. And some days you just got to think, whether you got a small group, or you're taking through someone through partners, or whatever your dealings with people is, you've got to look like the Apostle Paul, who had every reason to be cynical about ministry. He'd been run out of town. He'd been run out of this town. And yet he looks at the positive gains, and he celebrates those things. And that's a good challenge, I think, for all of us to find the positivity of the growth in our efforts in people's lives and to celebrate those, feel good about those. As we pray around our dinner table for our, we pray through the Christmas cards, the people that send us Christmas cards in December, and to think the positive thoughts about those families when we have positive reports to thank God for. That is an encouraging thing and needs to be purposeful in our prayer lives about other people. And his positivity about ministry. Again, he's been run out of town. He's been run out of a lot of regions in Greece there, and he is still acting and speaking in Achaia and Macedonia like it's a privilege to do ministry. That's awesome that he can have such a positive view of ministry. A lot of people get involved in ministry, and it's not like their Christianity where they bail out of Christianity because of persecution because of the word, but they have persecution because of ministry, and they back down from ministry. I'm not saying that's a salvific issue, but I do think it's not a biblical mindset. We need to recognize ministry is hard. It's harder than sitting in the pew and doing nothing. When you take a role and you get involved, it's going to be harder. And yet the Apostle Paul has a great positive view. And that parallel of mother and father is a great one. Moms and dads go through a lot of struggle and pain to raise their children. But he says, because of my love for you guys, that's what I do. And he's positive about the process. And again, I've already said this, but the refutation for a good reason, just like in Galatians, when there's a right reason to defend yourself, then it's time to defend yourself, not for the sake of yourself, but for the sake of the truth, refutation for a good reason. And you got to think smart about that. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And that's the problem, not just about his assessment or her assessment of you, but her assessment or his assessment of the truth. And sometimes that's just good following up with a follow-up question. When there's accusations that are ridiculous, and there were accusations about Paul that were ridiculous, and he responds to those. And sometimes we have to do the same. A lot of the criticism, if it's personal, we can let it roll off our back. But sometimes when they're making statements that are absolutely absurd about who we are as ministers or Christians, we need to respond to get that charge off of our back, which is the word apologetics, apologia, removing that charge. And that's what refutation is all about. Number four, the truth that we can please the Lord. And I only say this, I wouldn't have said it 20 years ago, but today I think this is one of the greatest sections of Scripture to remind us that we can please the Lord. And you think, well, of course. No, it's not of course anymore. Certainly in our circles that have a high view of God and a high view of salvation, they have completely lost this sense. Matter of fact, they think that when you read in the Old Testament that our righteousness is as filthy rags, you might as well just take that in to your Christian life and recognize that. You're just a loser. And God looks at you as a loser and he always will. And, and, and I understand that we can value and champion some of the greater discoveries, if you will, or rediscoveries of the gospel of the Reformation by saying that, that we are at the same time righteous and sinner. I understand that. We can quote it in Latin and sound real smart. But the idea of our justification declaring us righteous while we are sinners. I get all that. But as Christians now, there's something called regeneration, the doctrine of regeneration that changes my relationship with the living God. And because of the Holy Spirit at work in my life, the remedy of my life, and by that I mean the old things passing away and new things coming, 
is, I'm not dealing with a computer program, I'm dealing with God, a person. He looks at our lives and takes pleasure in them. We can please him. For instance, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Might be worth looking at this passage, or I think I put it on the slide. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord that as you received from us how you ought to walk to please God. Did you catch that? We can walk to please God. Walk, of course, the metaphor of the Christian life. You can live the Christian life in a way that pleases God, just as you were doing. You're pleasing God in your Christian life? Yes, that you do so more and more. Now, wait a minute. If God looks at me and only sees Christ, then I can't please him anymore than I'm pleasing him right now because he sees me in Christ. If you start taking that thinking into your Christian life, you've missed the point of progressive sanctification, that we are progressively becoming more and more like Christ from one level of glory to the next level of glory, which means that God is looking at us, as this passage says, with a increasingly well-pleasing view of us as a father does a son that is maturing. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord, for this is the will, the want, the desire of God, the revealed will of God for you, your sanctification. What kind of sanctification is that? It's the progressive kind, the kind where you please God more and more. And in this case, he uses as an example sexual immorality. You abstain from it, every form of it, every kind of it, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. So he uses something that's rampant in the ancient world, and he says this is something you can prove your new life in Christ as you increasingly control yourself in a holy and honorable way, in a sex-saturated, licentious culture, which they had in First Thessalonians, and hey, we happen to have one now as well. The distinction that I often draw is the distinction between justification and sanctification. Because if you think about it, when you look at a passage like verse 1 that says, the way you ought to walk, we are not talking about your, your justification. We're talking about your sanctification, your ongoing matter of life, your, your manner of life. You're walking in the Christian life. Justification, on the other hand, happens at one point in time. You become a Christian and instantaneously the sinner is declared righteous. The imputation of Christ's righteousness makes you right before the living God. I get that. I understand that. That is awesome. Well, it says we can please God. Well, that's the thing. The things that we do with our body in terms of controlling it, and it can be our mouth and the words we control, but as we do that more and more, we are pleasing God. We're doing works that actually bring pleasure to God. But if I say to you, how can my non-Christian neighbor do some good works to please God? You're going to say, oh, now let's quote Isaiah. Your righteousness is as filthy rags. Why? Because you're separated from God. That's different than me. I'm not separated from God. They're lost. I'm not lost. They're dead to, to God. I'm not. I'm alive in Christ. That's the difference. Their works do not please God no matter what they are. They can never attain righteousness. And by that, I mean they can never be counted as righteous as a part of God's family by their good works. But we can. That's the difference between justification and sanctification. And as I've already kind of said here in the reading of the text, we can do so more and more. So I can please God in correspondence to my works and my good deeds more and more. Non-Christians, they can't. All they can do is become a Christian. And the moment they become a Christian, they can't get more acceptance before God than they have at that very moment. That is a one-time event. They get saved and immediately they're accepted before God. The next passage says the will of God, the want of God, the desire of God, the revealed will of God is our sanctification. Sanctification. The word sanctification from the word sanctus in Latin, which comes from hagios in Greek in the New Testament, means to be set apart. We are being set apart progressively in our Christian life a little bit at a time, more and more and more and more. That's the goal. We're being set apart progressively. Well, there is a kind of sanctification. It's called positional sanctification, when in the New Testament we use the same exact word based on the word holy, and it has to do with being set apart as gods, not being set apart from sin in my Christian life, but setting up being set apart as God's child. 
That's justification. Very big distinction in the Bible. Then it says in verse number four, we ought to know how to control our own body in holiness. Look at the wording there. How to control his own body in holiness. How to control his own body in holiness. For all this faith-based sanctification and grace looking at my sanctification and all this double talk about, you know what, it's let go, let God, which they wouldn't put it that way anymore. We're not Keswickian. But the idea of people seeing this in some fanciful mystical way, that's not how it's presented here in a great clear passage about our sanctification. We are told to set ourselves apart from sin. Now, when you do, do you do this? You stand up and go, hey, I went sinless in this hour. No, you don't say that. You don't take credit for that because you wouldn't even take a breath without God. He gives you life and breath and everything else. So we credit God for all good things. He's the giver of all good things. But when it comes to justification, we're never told to set ourselves apart unto God. God does all the work. He sets us apart because of what Christ has done. That distinction right there would solve a myriad of problems in the modern church. And I hope this is going away. As, as, as an emphasis, although I don't think it will anytime soon, because if I can live in my sanctification as though it is my justification, then I can lean back, put it on cruise control and claim that really this is just about God looking at me and loving me as much as he could ever love me. But by that, you mean I'm pleasing him as much as I could ever please him. No, that's not right. Of course, God loves me in Christ. I get that. But the pleasing of God is something distinguished by my behavior. And that is heresy in many reform circles today because I think they do not understand the distinctions that are made between justification and sanctification, although they write books as though they know the difference. But I'll tell you, there's no clearer passage. And we could go on to the rest of the section there, all the way to verse 12 if we wanted to, but we don't have time. The truth that we can please the Lord, it sounds so simple, but that's one of my favorite things about the book of First Thessalonians, that we can please the Lord. And when I say we, I mean we as Christians can please the Lord. Of course, the teaching on the rapture is a great passage here. By the way, everyone believes in the rapture. <laughs> no, they don't. Yes, they do. Everyone believes in the rapture. No, they don't. No, I mean Christians. No, not, not all Christians believe in the rapture. Every Christian believes in the rapture. Why? Because they believe this passage when it speaks in First Thessalonians chapter 4 about being caught up together with the Lord. They believe in the rapture. The question is, when does it take place? That's the real question. So when we talk about it in our circles, usually we talk about the fact that before the time of Jacob's trouble, the 70th week of Daniel, this time called the Great Tribulation, of which there hasn't been one greater since the beginning of time, and there won't be again till the end of time. I don't think that was in 70 AD or any other time in the first century. That's a time that's yet to come. We believe, or at least I believe, that that harpazo, that catching up together to be with the Lord in the air, is going to happen before that 70th week of Daniel, that time of Jacob's trouble, that tribulation, that great tribulation. And then I couldn't help but make the correspondence in chapter 5. I call them popcorn exhortations. It's almost Twitter-esque, if you will. When Paul goes through that passage and it's just one quick stab after the next. Don't quench the spirit. Don't despise properties. Test everything. Hold fast to what's good. Abstain from every form of evil. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. I mean, this is a great section. Brothers, pray for us. You want to fill your Twitter feed, you could do it all day long with that chapter. There's some great exhortations there. I love that. I mean, you don't need an expose and an hour sermon for every truth that you want to communicate. Paul gets it really, really fast in this book, at least in chapter 5. Second Thessalonians, third chapter, 47 verses, 
823 words in the Greek New Testament in this book. 347, 823. Second Thessalonians, the author, is stated clearly in the passage for Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul again, Silas for short, Timothy, although he's never called Tim. Paul and Silas and Timothy, then we get the same thing. We believe that he's still in Corinth when he writes this. He was in Corinth for 18 months during the second missionary journey. He had left Thessalonica and Berea had been run out of town, and now he goes down to Corinth. He's there for over a year, and we believe he writes this letter before he leaves. So we're still in 51, late 51, shortly after he writes 1 Thessalonians. Most of us believe he did that within months of writing the first letter. Check your study Bibles for argumentation. The recipients, Thessalonian church, nothing new there, just months later. What's the purpose of this book? To correct views on missing the rapture. Sometimes you open a can of worms and just simply stating something as he did and tried to encourage them with it. Clearly, word had gotten back to the Apostle Paul that they were all disheartened about the fact that they had missed the coming of the Lord. So that's one thing he's going to deal with. The second thing he's going to deal with is trying to encourage them in their persecution. He's trying to tell them, listen, I know the persecution keeps on ramping up there in your town, but don't be discouraged. Recognize this is what we are destined for and hang tough. We will be saying increasingly to one another as we start losing jobs and losing more friends over our Christianity. It won't be because you're not friendly. It'll be because they are less accommodating in our culture to Christianity. Simplified outline. Chapter one, coming judgment on the lost, which basically, as strange as it is in our ears to hear, they saw this as a comfort to the fact that they can handle some of this persecution knowing that they are they will be vindicated, which we usually think of in terms of our vindication, but the vindication happens not only when you are declared innocent by the coming king, but when the king punishes your enemies, which is the real logic of chapter one. We've lost all view of God's holiness, then we lose all view of his judgment, and then we take no comfort in the fact that the enemies of the cross and the enemies of the church are going to be punished one day, but Paul was offering that as encouragement to them. You didn't miss the rapture. That's chapter two, verses one through 12. I'm going to give you the logic here in this passage, because in this passage, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, people read this all the time. I get the question all the time. Well, it looks like here in this passage, matter of fact, it might be worth turning to. I didn't print it for you. 2 Thess chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. Okay. Now the coming of our Lord, as I said recently in preaching through Luke, really is coming in three stages. He's coming to get his church. He's coming in judgment on the world. He's coming to redeem Israel. That's a set of events all within the stages of Christ's coming. But they're concerned. Did this thing already start? We missed our gathering together. He says, don't be quickly shaken, verse 2, in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. In other words, it's already started. Don't think it's already started. Let no one deceive you in this way. That day will not come. In other words, it's not going to be completed. We're not going to see all these things happen unless the rebellion comes first. For the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. He who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now that weaves together a lot of stuff back from Daniel's prophecies about the abomination of desolation and Jesus saying, even though it took place, during the intertestamental period with Antiochus Epiphanes. But he says, no, it's going to come in the future. And it's going to happen in the future. And so the Apostle Paul is tying all these things together, saying these are the elements. The ultimate fulfillment of the book of Daniel is going to be fulfilled in the future, even though there are a lot of immediate fulfillments in the intertestamental period. So I just thought, for the sake of a speedy summary of what I'm talking about here, if you'd missed it, the Antichrist would have already arrived. In other words, if the gathering together of the Lord's people 
had been missed. You would already see these events playing out. And do you see them playing out? No, you don't see them. As John says to his audience, yeah, many antichrists have come. We have several opponents to the cross, but we don't have the antichrist. We don't have that one figure, that great horn that rises up against all the rest and tries to get everyone subjected to him and he becomes the god of the world. We don't have that. Oh, you may have some Roman emperor worship, but you don't have that. Let me illustrate it with this. If you'd never, ever, 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 ever been to a baseball game, and all you'd heard is me talk about baseball. Here's what baseball's like. They've got these leather things in their hand and a ball, and it's kind of hard, and that keeps their hand from hurting. They've got these big sticks. They're made out of pine or ash or whatever they're made out of. I don't know, some fancy wood, maple. And they, they hit this ball, and someone throws it really fast. And they run around in these old-fashioned pants, and they got shoes with little spikes on the bottom of them. And they got dirt in the front and then grass in the back and a wall if they can hit it over the wall. And I'm explaining all this stuff to you, and then you come to the game with me. And if you start to see this stuff happening down on the field, you're going to go, oh, it's, it's already started. You're going to look around and you're going to see people with their bats. You're going to see them swinging their bats. You're going to see them catching the balls. You're going to see them there having balls hit into their glove and throwing it to first base. You're going to see people in the crowd and they're cheering for their team. And you're going to go, I think we missed it. If something was to happen, if I'm to get out of this stadium before the game starts, to really mix this metaphor up a little bit, I'm going to think I've, it's already started. But if I said, no, 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 you don't understand. Didn't I tell you, don't you remember? There has to be this guy in this black outfit that comes out of the holes in the tunnels. And according to, and I looked it up, the official Major League Baseball rule, he has to actually, legitimately, with his voice, when everything's in place, say, play. Now, he says play ball, but the rules say he just has to say play. That's what he has to say. That's the law. And when he points at the pitcher and says play, or play ball, or however he wants to say that, Everyone else has got their uniforms on. But when he says that, that's when we... Now, if that's already happened, then we've missed getting on the bus and getting out of the stadium. Now we're in the middle of it all. See, the explanation of the Antichrist does not mean, as I think some post-tribulational or mid-tribulational people say, that means that we're going to see the, the rise of the Antichrist. I don't think the church is going to see the rise of the Antichrist. I think the point is, if we saw that, we would have missed it. That's Paul's logic in chapter 2, in my humble opinion. So, you didn't miss the rapture. The last part of the book, chapter 2, middle of the chapter, starting in verse 13 all the way to the end of the book, several things he deals with. Has them stand firm. He asks for prayer in his own ministry. Be people of prayer. Pray for me. And he says, get to work. Get to work. All of that really relates to the end times. The whole book deals with the end times. The coming judgment and the comfort in their persecution, that deals with the end times. You didn't miss the rapture. That obviously deals with the end times. Standing firm. Why? Because the end is coming. Pray. The end is coming. We got work to do. And then, hey, don't be a busybody. Get to work because you're going to work right up until the time the church is caught up together to be with the Lord. Things I love about the book of Second Thessalonians. One thing I think that is very helpful is the clarity regarding passive judgment. I think this is helpful if maybe you've been reading the last book I wrote on heaven, hell, and the afterlife. I've got a section on there I deal with passive judgment. Really a key passage. It's not the only one, but one of the key passages there is in Second Thessalonians chapter 1 which speaks of people suffering the punishment of eternal destruction. Here's some passive words. Away from the presence of God and from the glory of his might. Just understanding that concept right there will help people understand when they say, well, as it says on the famous atheist poster with all the faces of the famous, beautiful Hollywood elites that are claiming to be atheists and all the smart philosophers of our day, they're all atheists. They say, listen, if there is a hell that all those Christians are telling you about, don't worry, you'll be in good company. Well, the problem is with the word 
company that we take comfort in, there'll be no company. Why? Because company or hanging out or having fun or fellowship or having parties or any of the rest of what might bring you comfort to think, hey, I'm going to be with some really cool people there. You're not going to be with anybody there. Why? Because you're away from the Lord and from the glory of his might. Here's the thing. Everything good that God has created has been by his might. He created all things. When you get excluded from the Lord and the glory of his might, his power now is withdrawn. You don't have any of those blessings. All the grace of God is removed. There's no parties. There's no music. There's no drinking. There's no fun. There's nothing but outer darkness, the Bible calls it. Why? Because there's that passive element of God's judgment. That's a very helpful principle that I think is nowhere in Scripture as clearly stated as it is in Second Thessalonians chapter 1. The role of restraint of evil. And I had to add this one tonight because I know I caused some confusion on my discussion question on last week's worksheet from the sermon. Not only did I have a typo in that, which I'm very sorry for, when I didn't have the actual passage, I said Second Thessalonians, and I paired it with the passage in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, and I said, you got to remember, it's chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. I just love the fact that we as a church are called to restrain evil, and it's an interesting passage, because some of you read it in your small group and say, well, I still don't get it, because what is, what is, I don't understand what's restraining. Well, I did pair it with Matthew that says, we're the light of the world and the salt of the earth. That should help guide you, at least in my interpretation of the passage. Now, I underline a couple words here, because in Greek, both of these are very helpful in showing us a distinction, if you will, a distinction that has a correspondence. It says, and you know what is restraining him, that is the Antichrist now, what that's a neuter word in, in the text of Scripture, that interrogative, that uh, pronoun, if you will, that he may be revealed. That's a neuter. It's a thing. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains him now will do so until he, there it is again, is taken out of the way. So now I have a personal masculine pronoun. The point is in this passage, which I think is clear from 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians combined, which I guess you wouldn't know just reading the passage, but seeing it in correspondence with Matthew 5, you might catch the concept of that there is a church, right? You haven't missed the gathering of the people together with the Lord. What's the thing? The thing is the church. Gathering together with the Lord is that gathering being taken away. That church is no longer present there. Well, who's the he? Well, the he that lives and dwells among us. The Bible says the one who was with us and now is in us. The one that empowers us. The one that is empowering our preaching and the word that he, all of that. That's the spirit of God. So the spirit of God in the people of God is something that right now, by implication in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, is restraining evil and not just evil, the whole governmental evil system. Now you're thinking, we're not doing a very good job at restraining evil. Have you looked around at the news, Pastor Mike? No, I understand. Things are bad. They always have been. But even in Rome in the first century when Nero was on the throne, you've got to recognize that the reality is it'd be far, far worse if the church weren't here. The church in many ways, much like the theoretical righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, are restraining God's judgment. God is going to come to get his church. Then he's going to come to judge the world. And part of that is because his people have been taken out of the way. Is there salvation in the trip? Yes. Is the spirit at work in the 144,000 missionaries? Yes. Are people getting saved? Yes. The spirit is active again. But it all starts, and if you will, hell breaks loose on earth, if you will, because the church is removed because of the spirit of God and the activity of the church restraining evil. That just helps empower me to say, you know what, I'm standing up for what's right. I see something in a line at the store. I would think, mind your own business, Mike. There's times I got to say, no, I'm here to restrain evil. And that's part of why sometimes I get involved in conversations or reach out to do something that I wouldn't otherwise do because I realize my role as salt and light in the world is to hold back the coming antichrist's 
work in our government and in the world and in the streets. Third favorite thing about the book is the reminder about real miracles. One thing about that passage about the coming of the Antichrist is the coming of the lawless one is with the activity of Satan and with all power and false signs and wonders. Now, there are wonders and there are signs, but just like a sign that says, turn left, if it's pointing in the wrong direction, then it's a false sign. It doesn't mean it's not a real miracle or wonder, just pointing in the wrong direction. Well, I'm reminded about real miracles The fact that you can have real, bona fide miracles, but they are miracles pointing in the wrong direction. I guess I should have jotted these references down. But Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. Listen carefully. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder that he tells you comes to pass, it actually happens. And then he says, let us go after other gods. It's a sign. It's a wonder, but it's pointing in the wrong direction. He said, if he's pointing in the wrong direction, having you serve gods you have not known. And he says, let us serve them. And you shall not listen to the words of the prophet or the dreamer of dreams or the worker of the wonders. Why? For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether or not you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Just like those uh, miracles that the magicians did when Moses came and did miracles there before Pharaoh and then the false Janus and Jambres, as it says, as Paul wrote to uh, Timothy, those false magicians were doing wonders. It's just they were false wonders. This is in this passage. It's the power of the enemy, the activity of the enemy. So all I'm saying is this. God is always saying your scripture should always guide over experience. If there's ever a passage that reminds me of that, it's this passage. And I've said it a hundred times. If someone comes with a false doctrine and starts to do real miracles, at this point, the Bible says the next forecast of real bona fide suspension of natural law, G, quote unquote, T1s, is the coming of the lawless one. He'll do wonders before the world and people will believe him. But the Bible says you better be guided by scripture that's already been authenticated, not by the next wave of miracles. That's helpful for me. One of my favorite things about the book, clarity about charity. That's witty. Third person imperatives. I talk about those sometimes because in Greek we have them and in English we don't. We don't have any real, and we have word equivalents, I guess. It's, they're called permission imperatives sometimes in Greek as you learn grammar, in Greek grammar. We don't have a similar mood, if you will, to use a grammatical term. A third person imperative, like the one here in Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, speaking of charity to people that want a handout. For even when we were with you, here are the people that say, I don't want to work. I'm going to mooch off other people. Said, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not. There is the mood of this imperative. Let him not eat. Let him not eat. Now, wait a minute. He doesn't say you don't eat. He says, let him not eat, which means I cannot aid and abed someone in disobeying God. Abetting. Abetting means that I am becoming a, a party to their sin, assisting someone in doing wrong. That's the, that's the definition of abetting. So when someone says, for instance, hey, I want you to feed me even though I'm not willing to work, I'm not talking about people that can't work. I understand there's a place for Social Security. There's a place for welfare. There was welfare in the Old Testament. There were people that were in legitimate need. But when the person comes and says, I choose not to work, or gives me some lame excuse as to why they don't, they really can't work, but they actually can, if I aid them in that act of charity, I'm now disobeying the Lord. And so many of us have a misplaced compassion, which by the way, the Bible says, don't ever do that. I'll give you one example. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 11 through 13, 11, 12, and 13. It speaks about someone killing someone. That's a capital offense in Israel and should be today, according to Romans 13. They kill someone. The Bible says if they flee somewhere like to your city, the elders of that city shall come out and have his life taken, hand him over to the avenger of blood, and he needs to die, that it may go well with you. Now, the whole point and principle of that text then goes on to say, you should not have compassion on him. 
Don't let your heart pity him. That's a hard thing to do. When you start to hear stories and you get to know people, right? If you're a chaplain in the prison system and you got someone that's committed capital murder, just because now I like them and I'm in discipleship with them and I care for them does not mean I should now have pity for them in the sense that I say they, sh- they shouldn't have punishment. I'll give you an example. Numbers chapter 35 says, the land is polluted when someone kills someone, murders someone, and there shall be no atonement made for the land, for the blood that was shed of an innocent person, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst in which I dwell, for I'm the Lord in the midst of the people of Israel. There's an example of someone who has to guard his heart and look up this phrase in scripture. Depends on your translation, but let not your eye pity them. You know, don't show them compassion. And the point of that, when it comes to the Jewish prudence of the Old Testament is that I cannot, just because I feel bad for your plight, do something that's going to now somehow violate a biblical principle. Like if you're going to be a lazy bum, then you should, as Proverbs says, say, let your hunger spur you on to get a job. That's what the Bible says. I shouldn't be helping you eat Chick-fil-A and say, here, you just get, you can eat all you want. And that may sound heartless. I guess it is. It's the kind of guarding my heart against a pity that the Bible says I should not have when someone should be learning a tough lesson. Call it tough love if you want. That's a third person imperative. And it's one of the things that brings great clarity in my mind to charity. Because in our day, when we're so visceral and we feel so many things, really feelings govern this. And I can feel compassion for anyone I sit down and talk to. And the Bible says, guard your heart. Don't show pity or compassion in the wrong place. You need to be people that hold up high the commands of the Lord. For instance, like, if man doesn't work, you shouldn't let him eat. That's a third person pair. I'm sure I upset a few of you with that, but I can explain that in much more detail. Although I think that was pretty good for three minutes to let you know that the Bible, in a variety of examples, tells us that you should not be governed by your emotions. And in the feminizing of our culture, by the way, you want to get, you're already in trouble, Mike. Go further now. Get in more trouble. <laughs> Women are more compassionate than men. Am I right about that? You feminize a culture and let women always win the arguments of how we feel about people in their situation. You are going to necessarily, you are going to necessarily, you're going to necessarily transgress the law of God. Because it's very clear, there are many times when your husband should hold you back and say, I know you want to rescue that stray kitten. I'm not talking about cats now. But you shouldn't because the difficulty that should be on that person, whether it's because he's murdered someone or refuses to work, to use this passage, you should let that consequence come its way because that's God's economy. And in the case of of murder, for instance, he says in Numbers 35, nothing will satisfy justice until their blood is shed. Back to the Noahic covenant, and I'm not here to talk politics. I'm just preaching the Bible right now. First Corinthians, the length, 16 chapters, 437 verses, 6,829 words, just by way of comparison. Maybe you can build a chart when this is all done, and you'll see what I taught you, and that is that we go from small, large to small. We're now in the major epistles of the Apostle Paul. Author stated very clearly, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul called by the will of God and Apostle Christ Jesus. Oh, he adds someone, Sosthenes, Sosthenes. So Paul the Apostle includes one associate in this case. His name is Sosthenes. Now, that word, if you look up Sosthenes, that proper noun, you're going to find it over there in Acts chapter 18, verse 17, when Paul is in Corinth. So he's writing to the Corinthians about a guy named Sosthenes. I can't believe that some commentators don't believe this. They don't believe it's the same guy. It's it's the same city, and he doesn't distinguish him from the guy that is described. Well, the reason they don't want to think it's him is because when we meet him, he's the ruler of the synagogue. And in that setting, you think, wow, it doesn't seem like he's on Paul's team. Well, he's not, but he becomes a a Christian. I'm 
quite sure. So Sosthenes becomes an associate that's named in the opening of 1 Corinthians. And as you read in Acts chapter 18, he has quite a story. And one day you can stand in line and hear the testimony of Sosthenes, I'm sure, and you will have time to get around to him and ask him. So tell me about your conversion in Corinth, because we didn't get it in the uh, book of Acts, in Luke's record. The date, we believe he writes this from Ephesus in his third missionary journey. Remember I said Ephesus, he was there the longest, at least two and a half years, probably three years in Ephesus on his third missionary journey. And he writes this letter from Ephesus on the third journey. The third journey helps us give the timetable. We know when that's going on. We're assuming somewhere in the middle of that three-year stint, Ephesus, let's call it 54, AD 54. By the way, we don't have a lot of time to get into the letters of Paul to the Corinthians, but there are two God-breathed letters, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. But 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians were not the first and second letters Paul wrote to Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, in the first letter that we call 1 Corinthians, he talks about a previous letter when he wrote them not to associate with immoral people. There's a couple of allusions to previous correspondence. These are not God-breathed letters, though, because we have the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But in this case, we have some non-inspired, if you want to put it that way, letters from the Apostle Paul. If we had more time, we'd go into more detail about that. Recipients, the Corinthian church. It's founded by Paul in his second missionary journey. So the Corinthian church, obviously, it's named after the church. Founded by Paul on the second missionary journey. Here's the map again. Here's Corinth again, just to remind you. Remember Thessalonica. Look straight up to Berea and Thessalonica. Right across is Ephesus. So he sails across the Aegean Sea, and at Ephesus, on his third missionary journey, that's the second one, and he makes his way home. But on the third missionary journey, he comes back to Ephesus. He fits in there. Well, Timothy ends up leaving there as the pastor of the church, but he writes on his third missionary journey back to Corinth and sends it across the sea to have them get their letter. If you look at your modern-day satellite pictures, if you look real close there, you can see that this is an, an isthmus which is that little strip of land, got water on two sides and land on the north and south. We're splitting up northern and southern Greece and Achaia, and we've got these two parts of the sea, which in this case is the Saronic Gulf on the right side and the Gulf of Corinth on the left side. And if you look there, this is the modern satellite picture. If you look real close, you can see a straight line there. That's because there's a canal. Here's a closer look at it. The canal that runs and splits these two seas. And if you went with us on our trip, you might remember we all took pictures on this bridge. Remember that? With this cut, they cut this ancient canal through the middle of Corinth because it's a major shortcut, obviously, to get across like the Panama Canal, only not as complicated. But there it is. And if you went to Corinth with us, you remember these probably some of the most dramatic, spacious old ruins from uh, ancient times. Matter of fact, we talked about the Bema seat. I think I preached from this Bema seat. The Bema just means raised platform where the leader would, would speak. Here's some more of the ruins we visited in Corinth, one of the most important places in the ancient Roman world in all of Greece. Rome took possession of it in 156 BC, and it was a holdout for a lot of years. But when they finally got it, it was a uh, very important place. Obviously, as you can see, it's a strategic piece of land. Because it's a strategic piece of land where you had to get all your commerce going through it, east and west, and all your traveling on the land, north and south, such a concentrated key strategic place that it became very rich. A lot of merchants going through, a lot of people doing business there in town. It also, sadly, was known for its corruption it became a corrupt, immoral, degenerate place. Uh, I guess I didn't need to put this after saying there was a lot of travelers, but a lot of travelers going through. A lot of Greeks and Jews lived there. And the church, of course, was made up of Greeks and Jews. Paul's, Paul always started preaching the gospel in the synagogues. And so we had Greeks and Jews that were written 
two, as Paul sat on his third missionary journey and wrote back to them. Slave population. I've talked about Greco-Roman slavery before. I think I did it earlier in this series. This is one of the towns, because of the nature of what went on there and where it was, 60% of the population, it's estimated in the first century, in this city were slaves. And that doesn't, that doesn't mean American slaves bringing people on boats from other countries. This means people that had sold themselves into some kind of profession and owned by their masters. And much different And many, as I said, there's professors and doctors and dentists and all kinds of professionals that were slaves along with just your average everyday workers. But that made for an interesting dynamic in Corinth. Speaking of its moral corruption, Aphrodite was the goddess of the city and and hail. There's lots of ancient, this is third century BC, and we've got plenty. If you go to the Louvre, for instance, there are plenty of pictures of Aphrodite. Some were the torso of her from the first century and rebuilt by Romans, like the head or the arms in the third or fourth century. But, you know, here she is clutching herself. This is a god of, of sex, of course, of, of pleasure, of sexual gratification. The um, Epaphrodite prostitutes, they say in the first century there were a thousand temple prostitutes on the Acro-Corinth, which was the high place in Corinth, the high, like I showed, the beautiful silhouetted high place in Corinth. A thousand temple prostitutes. To worship this god, you would go and have one of the young prostitutes there. You would engage with them. There's plenty of reliefs and ancient paintings of the prostitutes at work for Aphrodite, and it was corrupt. This was just how people, I mean, today, of course, would say, oh, you know, Charlie snuck up to Santa Ana to, to have a night with a prostitute. That would be scandalous. But in those days, like everyone did, that was just normal. Where are you going after work? Well, I'm going to go to the game, but I think I'll just go up to the temple. And, you know, that, that's how this happened. This was just so normal for them, the, the kind of sexual degeneracy that took place. Very common. And, of course, it's degenerating. It's sin against your own body. Isthmian Games. This is like the Olympic Games. It happened on the uh, off years. It occurred the first and third years of the Olympiad, the four-year period between the Olympic Games. Both were famous, but there's lots of ancient history of the games that were going on. Paul uses this as an example and an illustration. He's a good preacher, obviously, using modern illustrations that they were used to. Interesting, at least historically, the two wreaths. Remember, he talks about getting the crown. Well, the crowns we're talking about are the crowns that they would present. If you look closely there, and and you can decipher your Greek languages from your fraternities and sororities, you'll see one is the Isthmian Games and one is the Olympic Games. The pine wreath is for the Isthmian Games, and the laurel wreath on the right-hand side is for the Olympic Games. But you would work to race to to win the crown, to win the the prize. And in this case, it was a crown. And that's what they had in mind when they had crowns, when they talk about crowns or rewards being honored. Purpose of the book was to correct a lot of problems. Clearly, that's what was going on. And these problems were often presented to Paul as questions. The real trick in in the book, at least hermeneutically, is to make sure you rightly put quotations in English around the actual question. Sometimes that's hard like stomach for the food, food for stomach, and you think, okay, quote, unquote, no, keep going, right? And, the, and, the, and both are going to be done away with. I'm thinking that's the whole quote. You've got to be careful when you look at the quotations. When it says, now concerning, colon. Well, you, can, you don't have any of the punctuation in the original manuscripts back to the day, the original ancient manuscripts. So you've got to be careful to make sure you're looking at the answer, looking to figure out what the question was, and you see this as the syntax, we call it, as the pattern of how this all plays out in the book, kind of a larger rhetorical or largest syntactical layout of the book. And of course, it's all about making sure that this crazy culture that's a lot like you would see in Vegas or something, that it was called for the church to be holy and to be doing their church services in an orderly way. So correcting problems, 
What's the outline? This is as simple, simple, simple as I can get. It's almost criminal that it's so simple. But the first four chapters, and if you study this book carefully, you'll see that the theme continues on. And it is good. It's like Hebrews where you can get so lost in the, in the forest for the trees, you don't see the whole picture. But look carefully and you can see, I don't think it's as hard as Hebrews, but you can see that this is one section here, chapters one through four. No more factions. No more, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Cephas. Worldly behavior. And there's plenty of it discussed in chapters 5 and 6. A lot of bad things happening in the church. You had incest. You had suing each other. A lot of bad things going on. Chapter 7. Now we get down to something that's very prevalent in their society. That is licentious sexual behavior. And he deals with sex. And he deals with marriage. And he deals with divorce. Part of human life, our sexuality. And he wants to make sure... We get it rightly understood in the context of what God's will is for Christians. The guilt by association issues, and by that, I'm talking about the marketplace meat that was sold after it had been dedicated to an idol. All the idols in the town, you could have a whole section of meat sacrificed to idols, and now you had to make a decision, shall I eat that or not? Spiritual gifts, if you know the book of First Corinthians, you know there's a lot of seemingly hard to understand passages in this section about the gifts going on in Corinth. Remember, this is a fairly early book. And we see a small section of miraculous gifts that are described. And by that, I mean GT1 kinds of gifts. Chapter 15, if you know the book, every Easter we start quoting from chapter 15. We should quote from it more often about the resurrection of the body, about Christ's resurrection as the prototype. And then some personal issues in chapter 16 about Paul's itinerary, what he plans to do, when he plans to come see them, people he's traveling with, people that they know, references in chapter 16. It's a great book filled with a lot of insightful things. My favorite things about the book, as long as you're asking, I call it the self-esteem corrective. You want, to, you want your kid to have good self-esteem? Well, go to 1 Corinthians. You'll get a little corrective on that. I think you'll stop using the phrase self-esteem after you read through 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, for instance, says, For God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And he goes on and on and on in the passage. But as you know, as I quote it in sermons that I preach, he just lays heavy and hard into these guys. Stop worrying about your social status. God chooses common. Consider your calling. Not many were noble, not many of, of noble birth, not many were wise according to the flesh. Or how about 1 Corinthians 3, verse 7? He talks now about the luminaries of the early church, Paul and Apollos, the two most powerful preachers that we learn about in the book of Acts. And he says, yeah, the one who plants, the one who waters, talk about I'm of Cephas, I'm of, I'm of uh, Paul, I'm of Apollos. We're nothing. We're, we're not anything. Neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything. Only God who causes the growth. God is what this is all about. It's not about your favorite preachers. 3.18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. You want real wisdom? It's not about being important. It's not about being respected in the world's eyes. And again, just look at some church websites, if you will, and look at how they're pitching Christianity. It's just wrong. The idea of, of trying to be great in the world's eyes, that's, that's not it. So your self-esteem will take a beating in 1 Corinthians, which is probably a good thing. Because as C.S. Lewis liked to say, and we often quote, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Now I just need to think I'm worse. I'm a miserable worm. No, it's just thinking of yourself less. Just stop putting the focus on you and wondering how you measure up. That would be super important for us. Another thing I like is the Bema Seat Judgment Insights. Speaking of that last book, if you read the section on rewards, so much of it comes from 1 Corinthians. There's a lot in the book about God looking at our work, the difference between going to the judge in a criminal court or going to the judge at the county fair. I use that example all the time. The Bema Seat judgment is the county fair judgment. Don't think there won't be some tears there. 
You'll wipe away those tears, but there will be an evaluation, and you will care how you live the Christian life. Why? Because each one's work will become manifest the day. I love the way it's capitalized in our translation. The day will disclose it. It's a very important day, a red-letter day, a day you'll stand before Christ or on the Bema Seat. Our lives will be revealed, and the illustration on the table is like a refining fire. The fire will test what sort of work each one has done. How about this? 1 Corinthians 4, next chapter is don't pronounce judgment before the time. I know you've got opinions about everyone, but you should hold off on ultimate judgment because the Lord is going to come and he's going to bring the things now hidden in darkness, things you don't know about people and particularly their motives, and he'll disclose the purposes of people's heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Really, it comes down to God's evaluation. And there's a lot of stuff you don't know about the people you may respect. And there's a lot of great things about people you may not respect. And all that's going to come to light. The Bema Seat is going to bring it to bear. A lot of great things there we could learn. Clarity regarding biblical sexuality. First Corinthians chapter 7, 1 and 2 says, Now concerning matters about which you wrote. Now again, here's another one of those questions he's responding to. And I think in this case, we get the quotations in the right place. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now that's what they said. That's not what he's saying. That's the matter they wrote about. So they got this letter. When I say they, Paul and, and Sosthenes in this case. And they say, oh, I guess it's good if we're not sexual because our town is a sexual mess with Epaphrodite prostitutes everywhere. And so let's just, let's be really godly and not have sex. He says, no, no, no. He's going to argue now for singleness if you can handle that, if that's if something you can be comfortable with and content with. But he says, because of the temptation of sexual morality, which was everywhere in their culture, as it is in our culture, each man should. Now, the next verse defines this word, but it's, I underlined it because it's very important because it's already been defined in the book. Each man must have his own wife and each woman her own husband. That, that verb have, echo in Greek, that's a word that can mean just to have something, to pick it up and have something. But having that person, he's already talked about it in chapter 5, verse 1, there's actually reported sexual immorality among you, a kind of which is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has, there's the word echo, has his father's wife. We're talking about sexual relationship. He's going to go on to say, don't deprive each other sexually in married relationships. You're all married. Most people were in that day, as they are in our day, less today than they were then. But he says, you guys need to be having sex. That's the picture of this passage, which is uncomfortable for me to talk about here tonight. But there's clarity about biblical sexuality. Super important stuff, though, when it comes to, to what marriage ought to be. Another thing I love about the book, countering the guilt by association arguments. Get this every year, particularly this week of every year. In October, we go into the fall fest. Everyone's saying, oh, you shouldn't be doing a fall fest. I get that so much every year because someone's watched a new YouTube video and found out about the ancient Druids or something or the day. And so they're going to make a guilt by association argument. That was the argument being made about the meat in the meat market, and the people said we shouldn't eat it. Paul says, eat whatever's sold in the meat market without raising any questions. Stop researching all the background on this stuff on the grounds of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so is October 31st. We don't do anything we want on October 31st. Do it as long as it's Christian and righteous and biblical. We want to redeem the day in our community. We're going to do it. And the guilt by association argument, is there sensitivities to people that have genuine conscience problems? That's great. Sure. Matter of fact, if you do, you can stay home. But the reality of it, you want to get a good deal at Costco on meat, don't worry about where it's been. I mean, you might want to for health reasons, but you may not want to for spiritual reasons. And that's the point being made in 1 Corinthians. Another favorite thing in the book, clarity about spiritual gifts as service. Spiritual gifts today, people think they're toys to play with. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, To each is given a manifestation for the, of the Spirit for the common good. That's the whole point of the 13th chapter of Romans. It's not to have stuff to print on your napkins at your wedding reception. The, pa- the passage on love is about that we are serving people with God's endowments. If I'm uh, gifted to speak and to teach, then I should be doing that for your good, not for my good. If you're gifted to serve, you're gifted to be generous, you're gifted to do whatever it is that God has gifted you, do that. Not so you can feel good. 
Not so that you can be fulfilled, but you do it for the common good of the church, including the miraculous gifts, which were still in, in vogue and active in the early church, particularly among the people that were representatives of the apostles. But we've got to realize what spiritual gifts are for. And there's a lot of contortion going on in Corinth and in America because people think this is all about them having an experience or feeling good and insisting on order and worship. Clearly, he, there's a lot of craziness that goes on in the uh, early church, probably echoing the kind of gatherings they would have in the pagan temples. But he says that's not the way things should be done in church. Let all things be done decently and in order, and so it should continue on to this day. Number seven, insight regarding glorified bodies. I didn't mean to push the book tonight, but that chapter on resurrected bodies in the book, I deal with this passage with some detail about what it means to be sown perishable, raised imperishable. Many of you have heard me preach on this at funerals, in the church service, dishonor, glory, weakness, power, natural body, spiritual body, which does not mean invisible body. No, we have a natural body, a body that is bent to sin, but we're going to have a body that is also bent to the spirit. Just like you'd say, Don is spiritual guy. Our body's going to be craving what is good and what is right. Four out of five ain't bad. We almost made it. 